Good morning. My name is Matt. How are you doing? I like it. I like it. Man, good worship this morning, right? Awesome. And I, I love watching uh, those of you who are comfortable raising your arms and praise. And I love that song, the desert song, uh, because it talks about different seasons of life because we're not all in the same season. There's some of us in this room who the last verse was, this is my prayer in the harvest. Like some of you are in this time of blessing and things are going great. And how do you worship God in that? But not everybody's in the harvest. Some of us are in that desert season where it just uh, stinks, right? It's no fun, and uh, you're, just, uh, you're just looking for an oasis of hope. And again, how do you have an attitude not of grumbling, but an attitude of worship in that season, right? There's always an opportunity to have praise. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at New City Church, and we're going to be in chapter 4 today of our strategy of reading through the Scriptures. And this has kind of uh, been the tool that we've been using uh, starting about four weeks ago. It's called the story. Now, if you're just joining with us, we just kind of gave you a quick recap video of where we are. You're not far uh, far away, and I would encourage you, if you haven't purchased this book, to purchase it. It's not a paraphrase of the Scripture. It's not a novel. It is the NIV translation of the Bible, the New International Version, and it puts the Bible in chronological order. Now, if you have a Bible, most, most of us have a Bible, your Bible is not in chronological order, and for that reason, it's why it's often hard to understand. Like, you, like, I don't get it. Also, another reason that it's hard to understand is that the Bible talks about a lot of different stories. Like, for example, if I was to sit down with my friend Chad here, and I'd say, Chad, tell me about your family, tell me about your life, right? So Chad starts talking about where he was born, and how he was brought up, and who his friends were, and then as he talked about a friend, he said, oh, I got to tell my friend Michael, and he began telling me about Michael's story. Well, the Bible does a lot of that right? Like we're talking about Chad, and all of a sudden now Chad's talking about Michael, and I'm like, Who the, okay, where are we now? I'm confused. The Bible does a lot of that. The story doesn't. The story keeps the narrative going from what God started in the garden all the way through Revelation. And today, we're going to continue to connect those dots and help us understand chapter 4, and we're going to talk about a guy named Moses starting today and for the next three weeks. Today, is the, the focus is on the deliverance. Next week, we're going to focus on the 10 suggestions. Come on, the Ten Commandments, all right? And then in the third week, we're going to talk about grumbling or the wandering in the desert. I'm sure uh, nobody relates to that here. And so um, if, you've, if, you're, if you're always happy, you can skip week three, all right? Now, I do want to encourage you to read this. Here's the deal. You can't expect me. I know you people think I'm wonderful and great. You're right, right? But here's the thing. There's no way I can do justice to the life of Moses in three 30-minute segments. Would you agree? And so that's why I'm encouraging you to get this to read it, to begin to understand the story because it's impossible for me to read it for you on Sunday morning. Is that cool? And it's 12 pages. This, all you had to read for this morning was 12 pages, right? My kids can act like they can read 12 pages. They're four and they're still learning to read, right? So, but you can read 12 pages. I want to show you pictures. We start this morning talking about Moses. This is a picture from taken on uh, January the 20th, 2009. And this is President Obama's inauguration speech. And I want you to look at all of the people right? It goes all the way to the Washington Monument. There was an estimated 1.8 million people there that day. Is that not remarkable? 1.8 million people uh, were there that day. Now, this actually is not the largest gathering, believe it or not, of people. You can Google this. The largest gathering happened in um, uh, Copacabana Beach or some place in Venezuela at a Rod Stewart concert of all places. Any Rod Stewart fans? Well, there's a lot of them there. 3.5 million people showed up to see him sing songs. I can't think of one right now, right? But, you know, whatever. It's, it was beautiful. And you can see pictures. Of, but this is one in America, and it's a, a very large crowd. And uh, 1.8 million people. Now, what would you do if at the conclusion of the speech, President Obama turned to you and said, Okay, 
I want you to take all these people on a 44-day journey. Go. I want you to figure out how you're going to communicate with them. I want you to figure out how you're going to feed them. I want you to figure out how you're going to create law and order. And I want you to figure out just in general where they're going to go to the bathroom. Have a ball. Go. Go. What would you do? Like, oh, let me help you out. There's no smartphones. There's no quick trips and Taco Bells. Like, there's no fourth meal when you get hungry on the journey, right? There's no Johnny on the spot porta potties. Somebody's digging a hole, covering it up. We're doing that kind of business, right? Right? There's no police station. There's no sheriff system. There's no law. I mean, it, it, what would you do? Think it'd be stressful? A little stressful? Well, that's exactly the task that Moses was faced with. And we're going to talk about this great, great biblical figure for the next three weeks and how the Lord uh, led him through that and, um, and directed Moses' steps. I want to catch up on Moses. Moses was born at a very um, terror-filled time. When Moses uh, was born, uh, Pharaoh, uh, because of great fear of the Egyptians or the, the Israelites, the Hebrew people's population, so if, uh, to kind of maybe, uh, don't want to assume you know this, Israelites... Jewish people, Hebrews, all the same people, okay? So each word represents the same, the same group. And the Hebrew folks had gotten so many in number that the current Pharaoh was afraid, was afraid, and you read about this in the story, chapter 4. And so uh, it gets to the point where he says, I want every male child, Hebrew child, that is born to be thrown in the Nile River. And Moses' mother recognizes something special in Moses. It's what we read in the book of Exodus. And it's funny because Moses wrote that, so I don't know if he just thought he said he was pretty cool. But, um, but his mother uh, makes a basket and puts him in the Nile. And as he is floating down the Nile, Pharaoh's daughter is out taking a bath. One of her attendants is standing guard watching for alligators because they live in the Nile, right? And uh, she sees the basket, calls her attendant, he grabs it, and inside is this little baby boy. Now, it's interesting that Moses literally had no peers because they were all dead. They'd all be, like he had no, there were no, been no uh, young men his age as he grew up. And, and can you imagine the sorrow and the welling and the tears that were going on during that time? Remarkable. Be unheard of in today's time. And Moses has this opportunity. Uh, actually, Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses. That's an Egyptian name. And he grows up in the house of Pharaoh. And when he's of a certain age, he begins to understand that he's not an Egyptian. He's a Hebrew. And he's out one day. And he sees uh, uh, an Egyptian overseer uh, hurting, whipping, beating a, a Hebrew uh, worker, Hebrew slave. And he goes to their defense. He kills the Egyptian worker, hides his body in the sand, and goes about his business. The next day, he's out and he sees now two Hebrew men fighting. And he gets in between them. Hey, guys, stop. Cool it. And they say to him, what are you going to do, kill us like you killed him? And he's like, whoa, people know. And it gets word to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh basically uh, uh, pursues Moses. And Moses, is, Moses flees for his life, and he works on a farm for a long, long time. Forty years he works on a farm, gets married, has kids. And one day he's out on the farm, and he's uh, got, got his sheep, and he, he's taken, and here he goes from the palace of Pharaoh to a sheep herder, and he has got his sheep, and he comes to a he sees a burning bush, and it catches his eye. Now, I am flying through this. You know that, right? Like, if you know the story, you're like, man, Matt, that's really fast. And I, I got to say this. I'm going to be a little bit harder. Like, I have to be with my son Luke sometimes. I can't read it for you. I can't read it for you. And so I want to encourage you. Get into chapter 4. Like, what are you talking about? No, it's right here. Read it. It's in Exodus. If you, don't, if you don't have the story, you can read it in your Bible. It's in the book of Exodus. At the burning bush, 
Here's how the dots get connected from chapter 1 of the story and all the way back to Genesis to Moses. At the burning bush, God begins to uh, bring to light a promise that he made to uh, Abraham way, 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 way back. Okay, so if you want to pull out your insert here with me, we're going to jump in and we're going to begin to learn and read how all of these things play together. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 15, way back in chapter 2 of the story, right, in Genesis, we read this. God says to Abraham, all the land that you see, I will give it to you and your offspring forever, forever. Now, in our minds, we would think this. Oh, that means that probably the next week God gave Abraham the land. Or if you're really patient, a year, maybe you're on a five-year plan, and you could see God waiting five years. I got some news for you. It wasn't that at all. God did not give the land to Abraham. He made the promise, but he didn't give him the land. God didn't give the land to Abraham's son Isaac. He knew about the promise, but he didn't get the land. God didn't give the land to Isaac's son, Jacob. He knew about the promise, but he didn't get the land. God didn't give the the, the land to uh, Jacob's son, Joseph. He knew about the promise, but he didn't get the land. He didn't, like, you want to guess how many years? Now, if you read my blog this week, you would know. But do you know how many years from the time God made the promise to when Moses was born? Now, again, when Moses was born, the promise doesn't become so. I mean, Moses has to take the people out under the Lord's direction. He takes them across the Red Sea. you got 40 years of the wilderness where they're whining and complaining, and they, I mean, in the, in the desert, and they stayed there because they didn't have the faith to take the promised land. And you, and you might even know that Moses got to go to the edge and see the promised land, but God would not let him go in. But do you know how long it was from the time God said, I'm going to give this to your offspring to when Moses was born, when the process actually started? I'll keep you in suspense no longer, all right? 565 years. What? See, we're microwave people and God's a crockpot God, right? What? I just like hitting add 30 seconds and my, my meal's cooked. How wonderful. And I like to pray and open my eyes and for all of my cares to be gone. That's the lower story. We've been talking about the lower story. The lower story is our everyday coming and going, how we're trying to flesh out life. The upper story is what God's doing. And, how, and God's 30,000 foot view and how he is leading this world to suit his will. And oftentimes, we beg and plead and whine and moan and cry because our lower story, or actually God's not bending his upper story to accommodate our lower story. And I hate to break this to you. God, you can cry. You can spend all afternoon crying on your knees pleading. And God is not going to change his big story to accommodate your lower one. Are you God? The answer is no, by the way. God's God. And he asked us, his creation, his prized creation, by the way, not just something he did, we're his prized people. He loves us so much that he sent his son. But he asked us to align, to do our best to align our lower story to what he is trying to accomplish in all the world. So I got to put this in there for you. What do you do while you wait on God? And I'm not telling you that God's going to make you wait 565 years. I'm not saying that. But what do you do when you wait on God? Here is what I would like to encourage you with. While you wait, remain loyal to God. While you wait, remain loyal. I use loyal on purpose. A lot of times you might hear this. While you wait, be faithful. Or hey, while you wait, uh, be in a state in love with God. And listen, those two words, I think, get lost in their meaning. And we don't understand. Like I, I make the joke that we love God like we love Burger King. Like we love cheeseburgers. Like we love barbecue. Like we love Jack Stack. All love God. We like use the same word to describe our belly and our God. But loyal. I'm not loyal to Jack Stack because I'm going to eat Oklahoma Joe's. Are you with me? 
I'm not loyal. To, I like Taco Bell, but I'm not loyal to Taco Bell. So I'm going to go to Fronteras probably for lunch sometime this week. But when it comes to my salvation, when it comes to my God, I am loyal. Are you with me? While you wait, while you're waiting for God to do whatever it is that you're asking for him to do or whatever you feel like he has promised you through his scripture, what do you do in that meantime? You remain loyal as God connects the dots of your life. My friend, Pastor Dan, has said this once before. He told me one time when I was complaining, he said, Matt, God's never late. He's last minute at times, but he ain't never late. Listen, God hasn't forgotten about you. God definitely hasn't forgotten promises that he's made to you. And if you're in a moment of waiting, you remain loyal. Please don't be the Christian who loves God in the harvest, but complains to God in the desert. Now, some of us got some repenting to do sometime today. Because all you've been doing is bellyaching about what God hasn't done, what God hasn't done, what God hasn't done, what God hasn't done. Instead of saying, Lord, this is my prayer in the desert. And I'm going to praise you. Do I like it? You don't, by the way, you don't like the desert. Nobody likes the desert. But here's what the people in the desert know, or actually the people in the harvest know. We know that those times of the desert are what prepared us for the times of the harvest. So your harvest or your, your desert season is a time for you to grow, to mature, to understand God in a more deeper, fulfilling way so that when life is good, you don't neglect the Lord your God. How do you remain loyal? How do you remain loyal to God in, as you date? For those of you in the room who are single. How might you be loyal to God in your dating? For those of you who are uh, kind of uh, figuring out life and, 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 and whether you're married or single, how are you loyal to God in your finances? See, we have this a proclamation that's found in Scripture that is Jesus is Lord, and it's the foundation of all things that New City does. And Jesus is not just Lord of Sunday morning in our best behavior and our best attitude. Jesus is Lord is the attitude of the follower of Christ. Meaning that he, and it's not Jesus is the Lord of some things in my life, it's that Jesus is Lord of all things of my life. And so how might Jesus have a say in your finances, in your relationships, in your child raising, in your parenting, in your respect to your parents? Like there, there should not be an area of our life that we keep off the table and out, outside of God's view. Because if there is, I hate to tell you this, but he's not the Lord. There is somebody else that you are loyal to with that area of your life. You might love him, and you might believe in him, but you are not loyal to him because he has no say in this area of your life. There is some other voice that you lean to. Man, what might it look like for each of us in this room, myself included, to take a step towards being completely loyal to God while we wait? Amen? How do you process that today? Like that is just for some certain people in the room. And I don't know who you are, but the Holy Spirit is like saying, this is for you. You haven't been loyal. Now, what are you going to do with that? I would ask that you not rush out of here today. Find somebody that's wearing one of these. You can come to me, but there's other people. And talk to them about what God might be saying to you, right? And what you might do about it. Look what Peter says. Let's jump to the New Testament. And we're going to get to Moses. Don't, don't freak out on me, all right? 1 Peter 5, 6, Peter writes this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand that he might, the mighty hand of God, the God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Humble yourselves. What does that mean? Humble, we need to humble myself. So am I supposed to feel sorry and like walk like this? No, 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 no. Fight pride. Fight pride. Fight the attitude that you know it. Fight the attitude that you got it figured out. Fight the attitude that you know what God's going to do. No, humble yourselves. Become a teachable person in every area of your life. Don't assume that you know it. Don't assume that you've got it. Don't assume that all of your experience is going to see you through. Fight the pride in your life. Humble yourself under what? Under God's mighty hand. Don't humble yourself under me. 
I will let you down. I'm not good as you in certain areas of your life. Don't humble yourself under me. Don't humble yourself under any man, under any female. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. What's that mean? It means the authority that we find in Scripture. See, Jesus can't be Lord and you ignore his words. Like you can't say, Jesus, you are Lord, but I don't really like what you say. No. Now, we can love someone to do that. I really love you. Bless your heart. Come on, you say that. When you ever say bless your heart, you're like, you're weird. That's what you mean by that, right? Oh, bless their heart, right? It's like me saying the cheese has slid off the cracker. That's what it means, right? But be humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may what? Lift you up and do and one of my favorite translations. The, 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 I believe it's the NET says that God may promote you at the proper time. See, waiting and self-promotion are great enemies of each other. Because it's really hard to make yourself a name and to accomplish all that you think you should accomplish and wait on God. But this scripture here, Peter tells us to wait on the Lord and he will lift you up at the proper time. He will give you due honor. It says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That worry, oh God, I'm getting, I'm getting too old. God, I'm going to miss it. God, I, I'm going to miss my chance. No, cast all your anxiety on him for he cares. He cares for you. Now, we're not going to talk about this morning the tribes that are mentioned in chapter 4 in the book of Exodus don't have time. We're not going to talk this morning about all of the plagues, which are very, very interesting, by the way, and what they represent this morning. And we're not going to talk about Passover, which is extremely important to the Christ follower. We're going to talk about those things this week in a story group. They're going to be Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, and Friday night. If you want to be a part of those conversations and learn up, I want to encourage you to come, all right? Uh, Monday happens here, Tuesday happens here, Thursday happens at Arbor Square, and Friday happens in this room, right here in this room. They're free right? You don't have to bring anything with you except your mind. And if you want to read ahead and read chapter four, do that. But it's a great time to have a discussion around the table with other like-minded people about what God is saying through the word. Okay. Back to God's mighty hand and the life of Moses. Now this week, as I was preparing for this, I, I asked my friend, Charlie Blair, one of our fellow elders here to give me some research help concerning Moses. And my first question I asked Charlie was this, how many people moved to Egypt? Now, I want to read to you, this is the chapter 4 starts on page 43, and this is what we read, and you saw it if you were here for the little video prior to me talking. It says this, to kind of catch you up. Now, Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, okay? But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, really, I want to connect a little dot because sometimes it can be confusing. God changes Jacob's name, Joseph's father's name, from Jacob to Israel. And the reason I often refer to him to, as Jacob instead of Israel, because the, to make not separate that I'm not talking about the nation. I'm talking about the nation today. Through this man, Jacob, God changed his name to Israel, God establishes the nation of Israel. And so the people that went into Egypt and the people that we're going to talk about that came out of Egypt are the forefathers and the mothers and the great, great, great times 20 grandparents of the nation of Israel today. Are you with me? So this is how the nation begins to be developed. Then a new king, back to page 43, and this is Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 14 in your scriptures. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them and force labor. And they built two cities for Pharaoh, store cities. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Can I give you a quick thing that I didn't put in the insert today? Because some of you are freaking out from the culture, some decisions that have been made for our country. All the times in the, in the, in the word, anytime the people of God are oppressed, you know what happens? They don't die, they multiply. 
Don't flip out. Be the light. I'm telling you, persecution sometimes is a good thing because it gets rid of all the phony blonies. Just saying. I'll get the door for them. All right. So Moses has this charge to take these people. So how many people went, how many people, uh, when the famine happened, that came with Jacob, Israel, to Joseph? Here's the number. Based on these scriptures, Genesis 46, Exodus 1, Deuteronomy 10, Acts 7, you're going to find it's around plus or minus 70 people. So when Joseph reveals who he is to his brothers, and he goes back to his father Israel, the brothers do, and they bring all of their family back with Joseph in Egypt for protection, for security, it's a plus or minus 70 people. Now the question, the second question is a little bit harder, and this is a fun one. How many people did Moses take out? Like if 70 came in with Moses, like how many were Moses supposed to deliver? Now, this gets really, really fun. And it, the, the answer is so comical, it, it's almost, it, it, it's funny to me, because you get two great extremes. But the two great extremes are both miraculous in themselves. The first one is this, and you found this on Exodus chapter 12, Numbers chapter 11, Numbers chapter 1, Numbers chapter 26, that the number uh, is around 600,000 men. Not women, not children. And not any men who are under the age of 20 or lame and not able to fight. That is 600,000 fighting men. And so if you put in the women and you put in the children and you put in some other factors, you're going to get north of 3 million people. 3 million people. 1.8 at the inauguration. Can you, no, Moses, no smartphone. No porta potties. No restaurant. No Denny's open all night long when people get hungry. No Grand Slam breakfast for $3.99. It's just him. How does he communicate? There's no texting. There's no Twitter. You know, at wandering people. There's none of that, right? What, is, what does he do? How does he communicate? See, the, 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 listen, this is crazy. Now, I put, a link, I put a link in your bulletin that you, if you want to do some crazy kind of research on what was expected. But get this. Uh, for how they would have traveled. This is to me, this is so crazy because I'm going I'm to, if you've complained at all about ever going to the bathroom, check this out. Where the, when they would camp, if every person, every family was given a thousand square feet, right? And if they would, how they would have camped, if you would have camped in the middle of the camp, it would, you would have had to go 2.5 miles just to get outside of the camp to go to the bathroom. Is that not crazy? Like you ever have that rushing feeling? Like I got to go, I got to go, I got to go. Imagine if you've got two and a half miles to go. Wow. Get this. Water. There's no faucets. Water. Uh, we, we did the math. To every day, to give water for the Israelites, every single day, right? And they're out in the hot sun. They don't have Gatorade and Red Bull and Coke Zero. Water was their preferred drink, right? It's hot. They're walking. They don't have minivans and buses and uh, the, 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 they're walk, walking. We hate to walk. They don't have bikes. And they're pulling stuff. And they're hot and they're drinking probably close to three gallons of water a person per day. Not counting livestock, not counting uh, uh, all of those little animals and things that have to drink. We did the math, right, based on that. With a gallon of jug of water, can you see it in your mind? From floor to ceiling, from wall to wall, it would fill this room 20 times, right? That, now, that's the wrong one. You can go back on that one. That's in a little bit. For, to take care of 90, for take care of 3 million people with water, it would fill this room from wall to wall, ceiling to ceiling, 20 times, Jugs of water every single day. Is that not crazy? And you hate filling up your kids' water balloons. Right? You ever done that? That stinks. 
And can you imagine the grumbling that you read about in chapter 4 and understand why? Like we're thirsty. We're, we, and Moses is having to deal with all of these things. Now, uh, here are some uh, arguments against it being such a great number. The arguments against it being 3 million people is that it says in Scripture, specifically in Exodus, that when Pharaoh sends his 600 chariots upon the Israelites, that they are very afraid. And the question is, if you have 600,000 fighting men, why are they afraid of 600 chariots? doesn't make a lot of sense, right, logically, right? doesn't make it not so, but it's a, it's a problem. And just the logistics of how you move and maneuver that many people, there, there are some problems in that. Some people say that there is a translation problem with the word, and it's not 60, 000, or 600,000, it's 6,000. Which, while that makes a big difference numerically, but it doesn't really make a big difference in, in the scope of what had to happen for that number of people. If it wasn't 600,000, it was 6,000, and you factor in women and children and the lame, and, uh, and not counting the, the cattle and what they would eat and the other livestock and what they would eat and drink, you have now 30,000 people. Now, has anybody in the room ever gone with us to do uh, the chicken drop in November? Just by a show of hands. You've taken frozen chickens around? So I don't know if you've been there, but that's like, that takes some work. Like, we don't start on it the day before. Just getting this number of people across the street and behind us is ridiculous. We had people end up at other apartment complexes. We still haven't heard from them, right? <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Can you imagine if Mayor Disler, right, if she came to you and said, I need you, because 30,000 people is close to the population of Shawnee, right here where this church is located. What would you do if Mayor Disler said to you, hey, I need you to take these 30,000 citizens and I need you to move them to Edgerton 44 days in a row. Don't use Quick Trip. Don't hit the potties. No bottled water. Turn your phones off. Go. Three million, like, I can't do it. 30,000, you can't do it. The city of Shawnee has hundreds of employees. Hundreds of employees that manage to take care of a people who don't go nowhere. Right? They just make sure that we're good staying still. And that our yards are mowed. And that the sewage runs, right? Can you imagine if we had to go somewhere and do something? Man, when you think about the feat that God asked Moses to do, you would probably think, man, Moses must have been a tremendous leader. Now, you'd be dead wrong. Look what Moses says to God at the burning bush when God says, Moses, here's what I've called you to do. Moses says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Lord, you're out of your mind. Lord, there is no way. And he talks about how he can't communicate. He talks about how he, he mumbles over himself. I want to bring you to this um, first point or this theme, a reminder of a theme, is that God loves to use the underdog in Scripture. Man, I'm telling you, if you're in the room and you just can't get over an addiction, if you're in the room and your marriage is on the rocks, if you're in the room and you weren't voted most popular or most likely to be anything except in jail, right? Listen, man, God loves to use the underdog. Now, you say, well, wait, Matt, I was voted most popular. And, and, and wait, wait, Matt, wait. I, I am successful. And I would go back to 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves. Don't live on that. I was voted most talkative. They got that one right, right? <laughs> Don't let, no, I'm going to humble myself under God's mighty hand. doesn't matter if I've got great success or just a little success or no success at all. So that God can use this underdog. Man, if you walk around going, God, I got this. God, I got it. Get out of my way. Oh, he will. 
He'll let you go. You will crash and burn. And then you'll go, God, where were you? Well, you told me to get out of your way. I did. Humble yourselves. Don't think that you're all that, that God loves to use the underdog. Here's the, here's the new thing for today from this, from this story. God rarely calls you to do something that you could do on your own. This is so big and so important. God rarely calls you to do something that you can do on your own. Like, it's hard to find. Like, Peter couldn't walk on water on his own. All right? He had to keep his eyes on Jesus. Mary gave the virgin birth. That's not something she could have done on her own. She would have needed help from Joseph. Think about Gideon, who God caused for this massive, to take over this massive army with just very, 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 very small numbers. No way he could have done that on his own. Think about young David. Not when he's king, strong David. Boy David, who's called out to fight the mighty giant warrior Goliath. God loves the underdog, and he rarely calls anyone. He, I'm not saying never, because I'm sure that you could give me a time. But rarely does God call the person, right, to do something that they could do on their own. Okay, so here's what it means. If you're using these words, God has called me, and we hear it often, right? God has called me. If you're using those words, and yet what you're doing doesn't require God's help, it doesn't require you to have consistent, faithful, uh, loyal conversations with God. I hate to be the one to break the bad news to you, but God didn't call you to it. I'm not saying you're not doing a God thing. I'm not saying you're doing something. Uh, the, the scripture also says that commit your ways to the Lord and your plan shall succeed. Right? There is an, there is an attitude of, Lord, I'm going to do this for you. But don't confuse that heartbeat with, hey, God called me to do this. Because if God calls you to do something, I promise you, you're going to have to do exactly what Moses did and talk to God all the time. You know what allowed Moses to be able to execute this great feat? Is that God told him exactly what to do at every single moment. You will see God in chapter 4 go before Moses in the cloud and the fire. And behind Moses is the entire nation. And whenever the cloud went, the people went. And when the cloud stopped, the people stopped. Now how is this different from our life? We just wander around, go wherever we want, going, God, will you? God, will you bless what I'm about to do? God, I'm going to go over here. Will you bless it? I don't think God changes his ways. Will you follow me? Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what Jesus told his disciples. Hey, not, hey, why don't you guys go do what you think is best and I'll catch up with you and I'll send you a text and tell you if you're doing okay. No. He said, come and follow me. Are you following Jesus? Or are you out there doing something that doesn't require him? Maybe. Maybe. In my experience, man, reading the Bible in my own personal life, I mean, it's not the big things. Like, you're like, Matt, are you telling me that God's going to ask me to leave 30? No, no, probably not. It's the smallest of things. Because, I mean, I'll give you some stuff that I even hear from you guys. I could just never. This is how people say this. I, can, I would never be able to walk across the street and talk to my neighbor about God. I mean, I've heard people say that. I would never. Here's another one. Matt, I could never forgive them for what they've done to me. You, you, I mean, I've heard people say that. I've said that. I can never, I can never forgive them for what they've done to me. Oh, I can never. And, and here's the thing. Like, whatever that small little thing is, it's really not small. Because in your mind, it's huge. It's massive. And here's the thing. You can't. But we know in Scripture that God calls us to those sorts of things. That God calls us to proclaim His gospel. We know that God calls us to forgive because He's forgiven us. And yet, if you go like, well, I don't know how I could do this. You can do it. That's why it's so important in every little aspect of your life that you do what the people of Israel did. That you follow God the best you can. 
that you follow him. How does he say to forgive? Then follow his example. How have you seen other Christ followers forgive? Then follow their example. How, how do I uh, f- find the courage and the nerve to walk across the street and introduce myself to my neighbors? Well, you, you can't on your own because you're going to chicken out, but what if God compelled you to do those things? Here's what I'll tell you, and I don't mean to step on toes, but I probably will. God doesn't call me or anyone in this room to go live on a yacht or go move into Disney World, which I would move there. I like that place, right? Or into the mountains somewhere and enjoy the rest of your life. God doesn't call you to go on permanent vacation. Am I saying 401k is bad? Not at all. Am I saying that you shouldn't retire? Not at all. But you never retire from being a Christ follower and doing exactly what Moses did. Here's the final thing. There's not a person in this room, young or old, that God hasn't called to deliver at least one person out of bondage. Let me say this again. There's not a person in this room who is a follower of Jesus that has not been called to deliver at least one person Some of you have been called to deliver many more, but everybody in this room has been called to deliver at least one person from some sort of bondage. And so if you're bored in your Christian walk, if you're like, this is just not doing it for me, Sunday's boring, of course, God never called you to go to church on Sunday, come on. He called you to deliver somebody out of bondage, and the reason that you might be bored, maybe, is because you're doing everything but the very last thing that Jesus told us to do, which was to go and make disciples, to go and to rescue, to go and to help, to go be a Moses type. So for those of you who are like Kelly here and you're about to go off to college, right, or you're going back to college, don't get caught up in the whole, woo, college. Be aware of your surroundings and who has God called you to. Who has God called you to help? For those of you guys who are just moving into new neighborhoods like Curtis and Val, don't get caught up in the move and we're exhausted. No, no. How do you get into the neighborhood and meet your neighbors, know their names, and see who God is putting? Like, you don't have to call the whole street unless God tells you to. But in my mind, it's just, hey, let's just meet some people and see what's going on. What does it actually look like for us to live outside of our own selves and our own people and say, you know what, God, I will do what you've asked me to do? Because everybody in this room has been called to deliver something. Somebody delivered you. Think about Think about the person who reached out to you, who helped you, who was a Moses type for you, that introduced to you what Christ has done. Then you go and do the same. Two big thoughts today for me like, uh, that I hope are big for you. What are you doing while you're waiting? Are you loyal? And two, who in the world are you delivering? Or are you just sitting around waiting on something to be delivered to you? Big thoughts. I want to pray. I want to encourage, not not for everybody maybe, but for those in this room who you feel like, man, God's messing with me right now. Please don't go turn on the radio and ignore what God's saying. Step into it. Lean into it. And allow the scriptures and the Holy Spirit to speak into your life. Can I pray? Father, thank you for Moses can't imagine being there and actually i'm glad i wasn't there to accomplish that or be a part of it because i'd have been miserable but father thank you for his example thank you for what he did and may we learn as a people god that you've called us to do a similar thing give us the faith give us the courage give us the loyalty it's in jesus name that we pray this amen